Well, a little bit of uh, personal history here. When Norelle and I were dating, this was a few years ago, one of our first dates, our first alone date, I'll just say we were dating probably for three or four months before we had our first alone date because we dated in the context of the Navigator Ministry at the West Point uh, Military Academy. So there were always dozens and dozens of cadets. Whenever we did anything, they were just all around us all the time. Kind of prepared us for life, I think, having 11 children. <laughs> anyway, one of our first alone dates, we went to New York City to the Metropolitan Art Museum. It was just before Christmas, and there were these beautiful tapestries hanging up. Tapestries of biblical scenes. Let me just get this. Tapestries of biblical scenes. Um, we were both, like I said, part of student ministries back then, and, and we enjoyed studying our Bibles as we do today, both of us. As we walked through the tapestry exhibit, I know we're kind of geeks, but we tried to guess what the biblical scenes were uh, before looking at the written description. You ever done that? You're just kind of looking at it and say, okay, I think I know what this one is. And, you'd, and then we'd read it and say, oh, yeah, there you go. So that was kind of a fun thing we did on our first alone date. We had an incredibly memorable time that the, spending the rest of the day exploring the city. But the reason I mentioned that is to, to bring up the topic of a tapestry. Um, tapestries are interesting art forms that's okay. Oh, can you go to the next slide? Oh, it'll work. So tapestries are interesting art creations. They're beautiful and vivid on one side, right? So they're beautiful and vivid on one side. But on the other side, they're scattered and messy, right? Scattered and messy. You may know that a tapestry is made up by weaving together different colored threads. Um, the images and designs are created by the interplay of different colors and textures. What's clear on one side is somewhat confusing on the other side, right? So here's, here's a uh, tapestry that uh, one of you uh, gave me for this, uh, and I, I'd like someone to read what it says. Can, can you read it? You, you, come on, it's, I can read it. You guys can't read it? What's, what's, what's wrong? Oh, 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 okay. Here you go. There you go. Doesn't that make a joyful noise to the Lord? It's Psalm 100. Isn't that beautiful? Beautiful tapestry on this side. But on this side, it's a little confusing, isn't it? Same thing, just a different side. That's what a tapestry is like. It's kind of like our story today in Acts 16, actually. The Apostle Paul is on his second missionary journey going into present-day Turkey with the express intent of returning to the places where they saw God work in people's lives on their first missionary journey to see how they were doing, is what Paul said. And so they did. But what we see in this journey is many twists and turns as Paul and his team respond to a series of unexpected and unplanned circumstances, a series of unexpected and unplanned circumstances. As I studied the story, it felt 
like looking at the back of a tapestry to me. <laughs> it really did. As I just I explored all of these twists and turns, it felt like that side over there. <laughs> and yet, as I studied it, I was gripped by the way Paul and his team responded to these events. I wondered what drove them to act the way they did. What was below the surface? Or perhaps, what was on the other side of the tapestry? Because I'm looking at this side, I was wondering if there was something on the other side. Maybe that would explain why they responded the way they did. And you know what I found? I found that there was something on the other side of the tapestry. Not going to tell you what it is yet. (laughs) But there was something on the other side of the tapestry. What I want to do today is explore this story with you with its various twists and turns. And I want to note with you the way they responded to each of these circumstances and how it only makes sense when you come around to the front of the tapestry and see what image is displayed there. It turns out that this image is what we would call, what I would call, the heartbeat of the mission. The heartbeat of the mission. And it has a lot to do, really, it has a lot to do with what Jonah preached on last Sunday. A lot to do with it. So I can't wait to get there with you. If you've been following our sermon series this year, you know that we're going through the book of Acts in the intersecting letters in what we call the Great Commission series. The Great Commission, as you know, was the mission Jesus gave uh, gave us after after his resurrection to go and preach the gospel to all creation and to make disciples of all nations. And so the early church went, and the story we study today is part of that mission. But what I really want to show you today, after we go through the story, is the heartbeat of the mission. It's It's a big part of why they did it and why they responded in the very interesting way that they did through the various twists and turns uh, that they encountered. The heartbeat of the mission will make sense when we come around to the front of the tapestry. But first, the story, and before that, let me just pray. Lord God, pray that you would uh, grip us with the compelling nature of this story. Lord, that uh, we would see the story with new eyes and experience what your servants, Paul and Silas, went through as they preached the gospel to all creation and made disciples of all nations. Help us to be gripped in a similar way. Lord, I pray that whatever mess is on our side of the tapestry, that we would get in touch with the other side and that that would make all the difference. We just thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Well, our story opens up actually in the last few verses of chapter 15. Remember Acts 15, 36, Paul Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of God and see how they are. So they were going to go back to the places they went on their first journey and see how they are. (laughs) Isn't that a simple ministry mission? See how they are. This is actually uh, where the first twist in the story happens. Actually, before we even get to chapter 16. Remember that Barnabas wanted to take his cousin Mark, John Mark, with him, uh, who was with them on their first missionary journey. 
but left under somewhat dubious circumstances halfway through? Well, Barnabas wanted to bring him again on the second missionary journey, but Paul thought it best not to, not to take someone who had withdrawn from them the first time. In my last sermon two weeks ago, I shared how both Paul and Barnabas had valid positions. They both were kind of right in some ways, but they could not come to an agreement, so they separated. Barnabas going to Cyprus with John Mark and Paul choosing Silas and going, like I said earlier, to modern-day Turkey. Can you give me the next slide, uh, Eric? So you can see they're up in Antioch. That's where they start. The first one there, the dotted line is uh, uh, Barnabas and John Mark. And so they go to Cyprus. The one that's got the number two is where Paul and Silas head up. And for the rest of the solid line, that's where uh, Paul and Barnabas are. We're going to go through the story up to where they get to Philippi. That's where I'm going to end, and uh, that's where Jonah will pick up next week. So, so Paul and Barnabas, they split up. How did they react to that first twist and turn? Well, what they could have done was they could have thrown in the towel and decided to give up the idea altogether. All right, if you feel that way, I'm taking my ball and going home. Or they could have left in bitterness, criticizing each other, showing everyone just how right they were. But they didn't do either of those things. They continued with the mission because it was a mission given to them by Jesus himself. And while it may not have been an explicit agreement, they actually ended up dividing the territory of the first missionary journey. The first missionary journey was Cyprus and then Cilicia. So they ended up dividing it. And we do have some indication that they continued to respect each other as co-laborers in the Great Commission, just not together. We see Paul mention both Barnabas and Mark in an honorable way in his letters after that. So that's what we think of that. Okay, so... In chapter 16, Paul comes to the town of Derby and Lystra, where people had come to Christ on their first missionary journey. It says that Paul met a guy named Timothy. The story of Paul and Timothy is like the story of discipleship. I can't wait to continue to unpack it with you over the next uh, few months and weeks. But he meets a guy named Timothy. Now, Timothy was well spoken of by the brothers, and he seemed to be fit for the mission. So Paul wanted to recruit him to the mission that he was on. But there was just one problem. Timothy was the son of a Jewish woman, but his father was Greek. And apparently, Timothy had never been circumcised. So what's the big deal with that, right? I mean, we just went through Acts 15, didn't we, Mike? (laughs) Okay, so while not being circumcised wouldn't prevent him from receiving the saving grace of Jesus, we know that from Acts 15, it would prevent him from being able to join Paul and Silas in sharing that grace in the Jewish synagogues. uh, uh, Timothy would have had to stay outside, Um, so he wouldn't have been able to go in. So it says that Paul circumcised him. Paul circumcised him. 
And we know that Paul had gotten to know his family. Timothy's mom and grandmother are actually mentioned in a letter to, that he writes at the end of his life. So he knows his family. So while it doesn't say so explicitly, it seems by all appearances that this was done honorably and with all approving as appropriate. So that's kind of a twist and turn. It's important to point out that this decision in Acts 15 that, the, that was rendered at the Council of Jerusalem was addressed to Gentile believers. Acts 15, the letter, was addressed to Gentile believers, not Jewish believers. And that even for Jews, circumcision wasn't a requirement for salvation. Okay? So that's just, that puts a, hopefully puts it into perspective for you. And there is no instance in the scriptures where Paul ever applied circumcision to a Gentile believer. But this was a Jewish believer, and if he wanted to partake in the ministry to the Jews in the synagogues, it was something that had to happen. So that's what happened. Okay, so there was another twist and turn, in addition to that one, that happened there at Lystra. Paul is now accompanied by two new partners in the mission, Timothy and Silas. You know how it is when you're starting something new with someone? Well, Silas was Jewish, and he was described as a leading man among the brothers in Jerusalem. And he was a prophet. Makes sense. Uh, He traveled with Paul and Barnabas, carrying the letter from the council of Jerusalem to the Gentile believers in Antioch. And Peter, in his first letter, describes Silas as a faithful brother. So this guy was a good guy. Silas was a good guy, definitely fit for the, for the job. Um, and Timothy, Timothy, fairly new to the faith, new to the mission field, and new to Paul and Silas. What kind of a guy was he? Would they get along? So that's kind of a twist and turn. And someone else joins the team. Did you notice in verse 10, the personal pronoun? This is a very interesting part of the book of Acts when you read it. The personal pronoun in verse 10, 1610, changes from they to we. Do you know what that means? That means that the writer of Luke is now with them. Luke joins them in Troas. As they travel up, Luke joins them. And so for a few verses, he says we. And then he goes back to they once they get to Philippi. Guess where he comes back into the picture later on when Paul's coming through Philippi again? You make a judgment as to what you, what you think happened. It changes back to we, and it stays pretty much we uh, for the rest of the book of Acts. So anyway, just a little uh, hint as to Luke is now with them. So another twist and turn. <laughs> so, um, so all of a sudden, Paul has a team around him of two new younger believers, Luke and Timothy. And um, he's equipping all of them for the ministry that includes Silas by taking them with him. So Paul models for us this thing that Jesus did. Remember, Jesus chose the 12. Why did he choose the 12? It says it right there in Scripture. He chose them to be with him and to be sent out. That is a definition of disciple-making. 
to be with him and to be sent out. That's what the, when the disciples were with Jesus, they were learning all kinds of things about how he did things, how he walked with God. That's discipleship. They're with him, and then they would be sent out. And so they continued on their way, and the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So that's what was going on as a result of them visiting all these other churches as they went through uh, Derby, Lystra, and Iconium. But then they went into some new stuff. <laughs> the next twist in the story is they go into unfamiliar un, uh, territory now. And the Holy Spirit directs them in the ministry. Oh my. Watch what happens next. In verse 6 of chapter 16, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Not forever, but for now. And when they came up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to. I wonder how that happened. (laughs) So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. So the Holy Spirit was directing them by closing doors. By closing doors. Okay, okay. Well, we know where not to go, but where should we go? It's kind of like the sign downstairs that says, not an exit. Okay, well, can you tell me where the exit is? (laughs) I love that sign, not an exit. I think we should label everything by what it's not. Just kidding. I I understand why we have it. It makes sense. Um, (laughs) Well, perhaps you feel like that's what life is like for you sometimes. God leads you by closing doors. Boom. Okay, not that way. Boom, not that way. Okay. What do I do now? (laughs) Where do I go? Well, that's what happens next. You see, while they're at Troas, something amazing happens. Something that changes the face of history happens at Troas. A vision appears to Paul in the night. A vision. It's a man of Macedonia. He's standing there urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Come over to Macedonia and help us. I remember um, uh, when I was regional leader of the Northeast for the Navigators, we were praying for where we should go for international missions. There's, we wanted to partner with some place in the world, some some ministry in the world to do international missions. And so I'm looking at China, India, South America. And at the same time, I get this call from a navigator who says, um, can I come to uh, Maine to talk to you about uh, our work over in Croatia? Now, Croatia is just a little bit north of Macedonia. <laughs> he comes all the way to Maine, comes up to China Lake where we're having a, fr- a fall retreat. And he says, can you come over and help us? And so I go back to uh, my leaders uh, and I say, gosh, where should we do, do international missions? In, 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 can you come over and help us? I just said, maybe we should go over here. Can you come over and help us? Finally, I'm like, why don't we just say yes <laughs> to helping Croatia? And so for the next 10 to 15 years, we, we did work over in Croatia and helped rekindle that work over there after the Serbian-Croatian War. Uh, it was fascinating. 
So what do we do with the fact that Paul had a vision with this man of Macedonia, and, and what did they do as a result of Paul getting the vision? Well, it says, when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we, that's the first we, sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us, that's the first us, to preach the gospel to them. Did you catch what just happened? You see, Paul must have described this vision to to his team. They probably prayed about it, asked the Lord what it meant, But however they did it, they concluded that since Paul, their team leader, had seen the vision that they as a team were being called into Macedonia by God. Interesting that they did not all see the vision, only Paul. But they concluded that they were all called by God to go. Does that make sense? It does kind of make sense. But it's an interesting thing that happened. Only Paul saw the vision, but they all concluded that they were all called by God to go. That's what it says. Okay, so they went. In the first town they stopped at, after they went through uh, the little town there, Neapolis, uh, the first town they stopped at was Philippi, which is described as a leading city in all of Macedonia. We'll spend the rest of the little time we have left this morning in the story of what happened at Philippi, okay? Well, when they got to Philippi, there must not have been a synagogue because usually Paul would go to the synagogue first. Where he went was a little place that they supposed, I don't know why, they supposed this place was a place of prayer. Did they have benches there or something where they're like, Prayer things there. So I don't know what they, why they thought that, but they went there uh, expecting that there would be a place of prayer by a river. There they met some women. There they met some women who, with whom they shared the gospel with. And a woman named Lydia, a woman named Lydia, now Lydia is from a little town in Asia Minor, it's right there, from Thyatira. If you want to know something more about Thyatira, look in Revelations 2 and 3. It's one of the seven churches that Jesus talks, talks to. Lydia's from Thyatira. She's a seller of purple goods, which means she's rich. In Revelations 2 and 3, Jesus is talking to them about their riches. Anyway, so Lydia responds to the gospel along with all of her household. She comes to Christ with all of her household. And she invited them to stay at her house. Better than the local Holiday Inn, right? So they, uh, they stayed at her house, and they continued going to the place of prayer daily. When they encountered, and this is where the story that uh, Brenda just read picks up, they encountered a slave girl possessed with an evil spirit that apparently gave her the power to tell a people's future or to figure out what's going on with someone. So this, this girl had this ability to, to name what's going on with people or to predict their future. And the men who owned her 
the men who owned her made lots of money exploiting her abilities. Does that sound pretty bad? (laughs) It was. And for many days, she followed Paul and his team crying out this way. This is what she, I, I won't like try to make a woman's voice, but you can just imagine me saying it this way. These men are servants of the Most High, God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. This is what this slave girl kept saying to them. You know, she's, they're trying to have a conversation with somebody, and, oh, these men, you know, it's like, it's happening day after day. Well, it might be a great way to do promotion and advertising, but the source is a little dubious, don't you think? It's like, I don't know if I really want that source doing my promotion. (laughs) So it says that after many days of this, Paul became greatly annoyed. Isn't that interesting? Paul became greatly annoyed, and he commanded the spirit to come out of her, which greatly annoyed her owners, <laughs> who dragged Paul and Silas before the rulers and accused Paul and Silas of breaking the law. It says that the crowd joined in attacking them. The, the crowd joined in these owners of this girl in attacking them. The magistrates, think about this, the magistrates stripped them of their clothes and had them beaten with rods. We know that this beating left them with open wounds, because we see it later, after they inflicted many blows upon them. Okay, so that's what just happened to Paul and Silas. Then they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them safely. So the jailer put them in the inner prison, kind of dark in there, stinky probably, and fastened their feet in stocks. Now, I'm not sure when they got their clothes back. It doesn't say. But the stocks that they were fastened to their feet, the the stocks that were fastened to their feet, sometimes stretched people's legs so far that they would have to lay on their back on the dirty, filthy floor filled with I'm sure they didn't have a toilet in there. You can just think about it. With open back wounds. That's what's going on here. Open back wounds. As they're saying, probably lying on the back. It's, it's getting on to about midnight. And they're laying there. After having taken the, 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 the shame of being stripped, uh, the, the blows, the, the, the suffering, the pain, and now the infection that's going on in your back as you get all that dirt and grime in there. (laughs) Reflect on that for just a minute. (laughs) Reflect on that. Now here's a difficult twist for Paul and his team to handle. We've seen some other twists and turns, but this one, how would they react to this? How would you react to this? Well, it says... In verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God 
And the prisoners were listening to them. Who were they singing to? An audience of one. One. To God they were singing. And the prisoners were listening to them. Praying and singing hymns. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I could see grinning and bearing it. But singing hymns? What would drive them to do that? What would drive... Would somebody say, okay, now you've got to sing hymns because we've got to write this in the Bible now. So make sure you sing your hymns. No. Nobody was telling them to do that. Why did they do that? What would drive them to do that? Hold on to that thought for just one minute. I'm going to come back to it. Well, suddenly while they were praying and singing hymns, there was a great earthquake. Boom! You could feel the whole building shake. So that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors flung open. All the bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke, what was the jailer doing sleeping? Did he get conked out by the earthquake or was he just like sleeping on the job? I don't know. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Now, I don't know if Paul could see him from where he was or just knew that he was going to do this, but Paul cried out with a loud voice, don't harm yourself. Don't ha- Stop, don't harm yourself. We are all still here. He didn't say we are both still here. He said we are all still here. The miracle here was not just the earthquake. There's three miracles here. In, this, in, this, in the class this morning with the youth, I asked them, I think there's three miracles here. Name them. The first one was the earthquake. Yeah, that was a miracle. But the actual miracle to me was that they were praying and singing hymns in the first place while they were aching in their shame and misery. Nakedness, cold. And not only that, it was a miracle that none of them left when they had the chance. Nerella and I were talking about it this week. She says, Mike, the miracle wasn't the earthquake. The miracle was nobody left. Like Paul said, they were all still there. Why didn't they leave when they had the chance? What drove them to react that way? Now, I might be able to explain the reaction of Paul and his team to the other twists and turns, but this one, this one's too radical to simply explain away. There must have been something different, something very compelling, motivating them on. And there was. And there was. It was the image on the other side of the tapestry. Can you go back to that? It was the image on the other side of the tapestry. And before I finish with the sermon with that, I just want to quickly tell you the rest of the story, and then I'm going to come back and tell you what I think is the image on the other side of the tapestry. Okay, so while the jailer was so struck by the fact that Paul and Silas and the rest of the prisoners were still there, it says that trembling with fear, this is the jailer. Who would have thunk that the jailer would be the target of the ministry that night? 
The jailer, trembling with fear, fell before Paul and Silas, who led him to a saving faith in Christ. Boom. (laughs) He and his whole household came to Christ that night. And you can read the rest of it. But later, the officials sent word to release Paul and Silas. But they wouldn't go until they came and apologized. Must be the annoying part of Paul or something. (laughs) They came and apologized. Maybe he was hoping that they would also come to faith in Christ. I don't know. Then they left, visited the new believers at Lydia's house, and went on their way to Thessalonica, where, like I said, Jonah will pick up next week in chapter 17. So let me come back to the image on the other side of the tapestry that makes sense of all the twists and turns on this side. Okay, years later, years later, Paul is sitting in a prison near, near Rome. And this time, he's been in prison not just a matter of hours, but a matter of years. Years. And he will write a letter to the believers in Philippi. It's called Philippians. You've got it. He will write a letter to the Philippians where he will assure them that God is still at work even though now he's been in prison for years. He said, I want you to know, brethren, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And here's why. And here's how. And he told them. Then he says in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's what he said to the Philippians. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Which brings us to the verses that Jonah preached on last week. I think this was of God. On Sunday, last Sunday, Easter Sunday, in those verses, Paul was contrasting all of who he was in this world with his present suffering and setting it in the context of knowing Christ. All of who he was in the context of his suffering in jail in in the context of knowing Christ. He said this, I count everything, I count everything, all of who I am, as a loss compared to the surpassing worth, that word worth that Kim mentioned, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Surpassing worth. Nothing is more worthwhile. As the song goes, you ready for me to sing? Here we go. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all, you're the best, you're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you, Lord, love you, Lord. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. And he went on to say, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. And I want to know the power of his resurrection that would help me to not fear death, not fear rejection, the power of his resurrection. Because I don't fear death, now I can really live the power of his resurrection. 
And this part spins my head. And I want to share in the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That's what Jonah preached on last week. I want to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul would write to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. In 1 Corinthians 5.14, he says this. Coming to a close in just a minute. For the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ compels us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. The love of Christ moves us. Guys, this is it. This is the image on the other side of the tapestry. It's Jesus. Jesus. They loved Jesus. That's what made, made it all make sense. And they loved who Jesus loved. In 1 John it says, love the parent, love the child. <laughs> they loved who Jesus loves. The people. For people to be saved by repenting and believe in Jesus. So Paul and his team not only endured all the twists and turns they encountered, they not only endured it, they considered considered themselves blessed to know Christ and to share in the fellowship of, of his sufferings, being like him in his death. They loved Jesus. This is the only reason that can ever make sense of why they were singing hymns in the midst of their suffering. It's the only thing that would ever make sense of why they stayed in the prison and why many of them would eventually give their lives on behalf of Christ, to make Christ known. It wasn't just their dedication to the mission. Yes, they were dedicated to the mission, but it wasn't just that. It was their love for Jesus and the surpassing worth of knowing Him, to know Him, make Him known, and help others do the same. That's what moved them in the mission. This is the heartbeat of the mission. To love Jesus and be gripped with the surpassing worth of knowing him above everything else. It's the only thing that will ever make sense of all the twists and turns in this life. When you feel like your life is like that. <laughs> it's the only thing that will make sense. And this is what motivates us to trust him and follow him through it all. We love him because he first loved us. Come to Jesus. Experience that love. Don't just believe in him conceptually. Oh yeah, I know he exists. Don't just believe in him conceptually. But know him personally. There's nothing worth more than that. He is worth it. Worth more than anything else in this world. Come to Jesus. Follow him. Love him. This is the heartbeat of the mission. This is the image on the other side of the tapestry.
Amen? Okay, let me, let me pray. Oh, Lord, we read of these twists and turns in the life of, and ministry of Paul and his team, and we wonder how they could react the way they did. We see the love that they had for you and the dedication for what you called them to. Lord, we want that sense of love, dedication, and purpose. Help us to love you that way because you loved us first. We come to you, Lord Jesus, to know you, to make you known, and help others do the same. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.